It's watering time, everybody. Yes, this is your host, Travis Michael Fleming, and it is time for Apollos Watered, where you can get your faith saturated with the things of God. Well, we are going to continue our discussion in the, into the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God. We've been talking about this over the past few weeks because it is one of the most neglected yet important doctrines in all of Scripture because it really lays a foundation, and we really need to understand how important that foundation is. It's like the children's story of the three little pigs. It's a story that I loved growing up. And if you are familiar with this story, then I don't need to explain it to you. But if you are unfamiliar, allow me to bring it up a little bit or elaborate a little bit on what it is. You have these three little pigs, three brothers that build these three different homes out of three different materials. One builds his out of straw, the other one out of sticks, and the third one out of bricks. And the enemy or the villain in the story is the big bad wolf who wants to eat the pigs. And so what he does is he huffs and he pluffs and he blows the house down of straw and then does the same to the sticks and then finally gets to the brick where all the brothers are now huddling because they're fearful for their life and he huffs and he puffs and nothing happens because that foundation will last and will take on all of the storms. And so when we really need to grasp this, it's because this story really shows us that the kingdom of God is a lot like that brick house. That no matter what is thrown at it, it will endure. There are other kingdoms of this world, other things that are boasted about, other things that people build their lives with on. And eventually when the evil one comes or when circumstances in humanity shift, that those kingdoms will topple or crumble and fall. And we've seen this throughout history. If we look at the Roman kingdom, we're looking at Greece, we go back to the Assyrians or the Persians or different Chinese dynasties or those within Egypt or even South America, and we examine all of the different Aztecs and the Mayan ruins, all of these kingdoms come to an end eventually, and it doesn't matter what, how strong they were or what they consisted of, but they fell. But God's kingdom... God's kingdom is going to endure that no matter what is thrown at it, no matter what goes on in our government, no matter what circumstances that we are faced with, it is going to continue and it's going to grow. And so we need to be aware of that as we continue to study this kingdom. And this kingdom is one that is unshakable. It's a kingdom that is unshakable. And today I want to take us to a verse in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 through 29. And we read this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I want to break this passage down a bit because it really does demonstrate for us how our kingdom is unshaken. And we know it's unshakable, meaning that it can't be torn down. And yet, we also know that we're going to struggle. We're going to see opposition. We're going to go through hardships. And 
how are we to behave? We can't just sit around and do nothing. How are we to conduct ourselves as we are citizens of this unshakable kingdom? Now, we pick up our passage today in verse 25, after the author encouraged us with a host of Old Testament verses. And while he understood that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, he still gives us a warning. Let's pick this up in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Heaven. Now, the New Living Translation brings this out a little bit clearer. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. Now, the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who it is, many scholars speculate, but our author knew and understood that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but while we have that, there's still a warning for us because there's still a personal responsibility that we have as believers in Jesus and how we conduct ourselves. And it's really like a warning on the dashboard or an alarm going off in our homes. The warnings aren't there to annoy us or frustrate us, but to actually help us to remind us of further trouble that is going to come if we ignore it. And here God's warning us to protect us, to warn us of a danger that's going on around us. Now, this warning also, though, contains an example that's pretty compelling. See, he's actually referring back to the time when the Israelites had just come out of Egypt and were in the wilderness. Remember, they were wandering in the wilderness for about 40 years. But before that 40 years duration, at the very onset, they camped at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses went up to meet with God. And God then told Moses to prepare the people because he was going to meet with them in three days. Moses then consecrates the people. They wash their garments, purify themselves to get clean and ready for God, and then prepared to meet with him. And God's presence came down to the mountain, and it really was an awful sight. We pick this up actually in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 through 19. Allow me to draw this out and really bring us in to see just the vivid nature of what they were seeing. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. We're told of this episode in the verses actually directly preceding our passage for today, and that's in Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, now Moses has seen some pretty freaky stuff. Okay, he's seen the plagues. He had God speak to him from the burning bush. He has seen some amazing stuff. If Moses is freaked out, we are in serious trouble. If he is freaked out, then we're in serious, serious trouble. 
And, it, it, and we see here that while they were warned, the Israelites were warned, and you think that they would take that warning and learn from it, but they didn't. They didn't listen. And a short time later, God brings a series of judgments to them. The ground opens up and swallows them alive for engaging in sexual immorality. And others were executed because they just continued to party like, like nothing had happened, like there weren't any consequences. Talk about today's world. Can you imagine if God would work that way today? That the ground just swelled up like you'd be on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and the, it would just split open. Or you were in Delhi or in Lagos or in Kampala, some major city um, in like Guangzhou or someplace like that. And it just swelled up because of the immorality and all these people went down alive to it. That's crazy to me. But here, the author wants us to think how terrifying it will be for us if we refuse to listen. So there's an example that they've laid out for us, and we're to learn from that. I remember growing up in high school, and when I was a senior in high school, my friend said to me, we've learned so much of what not to do by watching you. We all have that relative or that person. We look at their life and we go, I don't want to be like them. And if we don't have that, that means we're that person. And we need to, to be able to learn from the example that God lays out within his word. And that's why we read in this text, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't, don't, don't fail to listen to his voice right now. It reminds me of my kids when they're not listening, that I, I'm like, you better not keep going in your direction, okay? I'm saying something that's pretty important to you. And he wants us to think about how terrifying, absolutely terrifying it will be for us if we refuse to listen. As we read in the text, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he wants us to know that we have this an example that we are to learn from, but... We also have an ending that is coming. Now, I know when you sometimes hear or talk about the end of the world, people get these pictures in their mind of someone standing on the street corner in some busy city wearing this big sign that says the end is near. And eventually that's going to be right. Look at verse 26 through 27. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So here he says that there is coming something that's going to shake all of creation loose to see what remains. It's like picking somebody up and just shaking them to see what comes out of their pockets. Everything is coming out of the world. And what does remain? I mean, he's going to blow against the structures of all of creation. And everything is going to go down. Every city, structure, society, everything we depend on, everything we bank on, everything is going to be upended. I mean, we think COVID is bad and what it has done to our society collectively all over the world. I mean, it's brought everything to a giant, massive slowdown. And here it's going to be so much more. The internet is gone. All of our ideas about the world, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations, all of our wealth, all of our status, everything that the world values, sports, hobbies, homes, educational institutions, job, the corporate world, everything that we know in the world in which we live is going to be gone. And there is an ending coming. This world has an expiration date. Now, we don't know it. 
But the Bible actually indicates for us that we entered into the end times the moment that the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost. The end times were ushered in that day. And it's time's not going to tarry forever. Matter of fact, God is going to come back. Everything's going to come to a close. There is the grand finale. There is a time when the curtain is going to be over. This is where we see that all of the earthly kingdoms will shake and break, but not so with God's kingdom. Matter of fact, it's going to blossom and flourish, and we're going to see it in all of its fullness. And it's like a brick house. I mean, it is going to endure. Now look at verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 12. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, we see here that he is talking about God's kingdom that's remaining, which is his way of saying that eternity is waiting for us. Now, since COVID is hit, I got to play the game Monopoly with my children. Now, I didn't play Monopoly growing up very often, but if you have played, you know that you go around this board and all of these different properties are listed and you're given so much money and you can buy these properties and then you can build houses on them and then you can build hotels. And then every time that someone rolls the dice and they come across your property, they have to pay you rent according to the properties that you have on the board and the value of those properties. Now, the most two valuable pieces on the board are Park Avenue and Boardwalk. Now, I was playing with my two sons. One is six and the other is 10. And I knew the value of those two pieces and I made sure to acquire them. And I filled it with hotels, houses, and then hotels, so that when my sons went there, they basically went bankrupt when they touched it. And I felt good about my accomplishment, as much as a dad can feel, because you're like, well, I'm successful. The problem is, the game's over. And everything goes back into the box. And all of the successes, all of the things I earned, the happiness that I felt, is all gone. It's just transitory. Everything goes right back in the box. That's how it's going to be when we enter into eternity. All of the things that we just did for our own amusements and not for Christ are going right back into the box. We can't take any of it with us. We need to make sure that we keep eternity in focus because it doesn't matter what pieces I left behind on the board. It all goes away. We need to change our perspective and realize that many of the parts of our lives will go away. But those things that we do for eternity, those sacrifices that we made, the small places of obedience will be rewarded, will last forever. Now, knowing that this is coming, that should affect how we live in the here and now. I think one of the things that we have largely forgotten as we see wickedness all around us, we see movies just trumpeting it or people saying that they're doing all of these evil things in the name of art or they don't care and they're just making their loud boasts on social media and what have you. We fail to realize or remember that every careless word is going to be judged. Now, judgment is about as a popular topic as drinking orange juice after you brush your teeth. 
people don't like it. It gives a real bad feeling, and we don't like thinking about God that way. We want to see him as loving and caring and forgiving, and he is. And we cannot, though, throw, as the expression goes, the baby out with the bath water. That, yes, he is loving, and he is forgiving, and he is also, though, the judge, and he's going to judge He's going to judge us for everything. But if you have Christ, then you pass through the judgment. Now, that's for a whole nother episode, but it should give us comfort. Not that God is looking at us, trying to beat us over the head, but that he is there for us, loving us despite ourselves. And that should cause us to want to live for something greater than ourselves in the here and now. It should change our perspective. Now, knowing that this ending is coming and we have eternity in focus, that should change how we are to live in the here and now. And we need to understand how the way we are to live now in light of this truth. Because when we talk about refusing him who is speaking, we have found that God still speaks to his people through his word and we can have nothing apart from his word. But our lives have a tendency to become what we put before us, meaning that if we put other things such as just banal entertainment and gossip or dirty thoughts or just poor jokes or wrong attitudes, whatever it is we put before us, we will eventually become like. And the more that we see it, the more that we behold it, the more that it will influence how we are to live and how we are to think. I remember hearing a story years ago about of a farmer who lived in one of the Midwestern states, and he had three young sons. And he hoped that at least one of his sons would take over the farm when he retired. But one by one, each of the sons didn't go into farming. As a matter of fact, they went into to be or serve in the Coast Guard. And it really was bewildering to the farmer. He couldn't exactly figure out why, because they lived in a landlocked state. The boys didn't grow up around water or a body of water, and yet each one of them went into the Coast Guard. And he was having coffee one morning with a friend sitting down in the kitchen, and they were just reflecting on how each of the boys went into the Coast Guard. And this man thought he had an idea, or he had an idea. He said, I'd like to see the boys' room, if I may. And so the farmer took him up the stairs into the boy's room, and he looked around to see if there were any hints that might suggest why these young men were influenced to serve or enlist in the Coast Guard. And he didn't see anything until he turned around and started to make his way down the stairs, and he saw there was a picture hanging just above the stairs. As they would have walked down, they would have seen it every single day, and it was of a boat being tossed back and forth by the waves of the ocean. And he said, ah, there it is. These boys saw that every day of their life, and it gave them a longing for the ocean. Now, when we put something before us, it makes us long for it. What is it that we're putting in front of us that influences how we live now and shapes the direction of our lives? What are we putting in front of us? Is it to get a great job? Is it to increase in status or comfort? What is it? We need to put eternity in our focus. Because this world is passing away, and it's going to be forgotten. But what we do for Jesus is what's going to last. That's why we also are to stand on the scriptures. That's where God is speaking to us in the here and now. It's the Word of God. Without the Word of God, we have absolutely nothing. And we need to learn how to read the Word and have the Word read us. 
And while it is hard, it's tremendously rewarding. I know that some of us here want to read, but have a hard time taking it in. And we really wonder what benefit the Bible or reading the Bible does for us. There's a story of an old man who lived on a farm in the mountains of eastern Kentucky with his young grandson. Each morning, Grandpa was up early sitting at the kitchen table reading from his old, worn-out Bible. His grandson, who wanted to be just like him, tried to imitate him in any way he could. And one day, the grandson asked, Papa, I try to read the Bible just like you, but I don't understand it. And what I do understand, I forget as soon as I close the book. What good does reading the Bible do? The grandfather quietly turned from putting coal in the stove and said, Grandson, here, take this old wicker coal basket that was black with soot down to the river and bring back a basket full of water for me. The boy thought this was an odd request because they had buckets. Why would he ask and use to have him use the wicker basket? But the boy was obedient and did as it was told. He went down to the river and he put the wicker basket into the water. And even though all the water leaked out before he could get back to the house, the grandfather looked at him and laughed and said, You'll have to move a little faster next time and sent him back to the river with the basket to try again. This time the boy ran faster. But again, the old wicker basket was empty before he returned home. Out of breath, he told his grandfather that it was impossible to carry water in a basket, and he went to go get a bucket instead. But the old man stopped him short and said, No, I don't want a bucket of water. I want a basket of water. You can do this. You're just not trying hard enough. And he went out the door to watch the boy try again. At this point, the boy knew it was impossible. But because he loved his grandfather and he wanted to show him that even if he ran as fast as he could, the task was impossible. So the boy scooped the water and ran hard. But when he reached his grandfather, the basket was again empty. Out of breath, he said, See, Papa, it's useless. So you think it's useless? The old man said, Look at the basket. The boy looked at the basket, and for the first time, he realized that the basket looked different. Instead of a dirty old wicker coal basket, it was clean. Grandson, that's what happens when you read the Bible. You might not understand or remember everything, but when you read it, it will change you from the inside out. Without the scriptures, we have nothing. God has spoken through his scriptures by his spirit, and without his revelation, we are susceptible to the lies of the evil one. Isn't that a great picture for us? That old wicker basket, I think about it a lot because the Bible does cleanse us from the inside out and it shows us how we are to live. And one of the things that this text specifically shows us is how we are to suffer well. Part of the problem that many Christians I have interacted with see, have today is that they think God is like a cosmic genie. That if I put or deposit obedience into the divine ATM, I get to withdraw blessing and no hardship. And part of the problem is that we don't understand or have an accurate view of suffering. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, we read this. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We are going to be persecuted. Straight up. As Paul said to the young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12-17, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
or 2 Timothy 4.5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There's an experiment going on right now in Oracle, Arizona. It's called Biosphere 2. It's been in operation actually since the early 90s, although ownership has caused it to open and close a few times. Its mission is to create a completely artificial and controlled environment with purified air, water, filtered light, to see how the environment affects the growing condition for trees, fruits, vegetables, as well as humans. Now, everything seemed to go well in this biosphere too, except for one thing, and that was the trees. They would grow fast, look awesome, but they would just fall over when they got to be a certain size. Why? Science, scientists were baffled. They couldn't figure it out. But they realized that there was something that the biosphere didn't have that was outside. Wind. You see, the wind caused the roots of the trees to go down deep. And for many of us, myself included, we want a perfect environment without difficulty, without disruptions and outside influences. We try to avoid such things in our day-to-day lives. But it is exactly those challenges that push us, that shape us. It brings shape to the words of Douglas Malick in his poem, Good Timber. It goes like this. The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger trees. The further sky, the greater length. The more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snow, in trees and men good timbers grow. Where thickest lies the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of both. And they hold counsel with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars of many winds and much of strife. This is the common law of life. It's about suffering. We need suffering to make us grow strong, to be good timbers, to be good Christians, to be great confessing Christians. We need to suffer well. It purifies us. It focuses us. It helps us to see and rely on God more. Now, this isn't to say that we just throw our hands up in the air and we welcome all comers when it comes to suffering, but we recognize that we will undergo suffering and it shouldn't be avoided and that we need to embrace it or see its benefit, just as we read in James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Suffering well. It's not easy. I know that there are many out there right now that are suffering. It's not outright persecution, but it is this soft lull of comfort, of instability, of unknowing, of financial insecurity, of not knowing how to plan for the future, trying to figure out what to do with your children, wondering where you're going to be and what you're going to go through. It seems daily that we have to make adjustments. It's difficult, but we need to replace that focus not on, and not look at our own comforts. And I know that's really hard, especially right now. But we have to put our eyes on something. We have to fix 
our eyes on something, and that is making his kingdom known, seeking his kingdom. What if God has brought COVID or allowed it to happen in order to purify us and refocus and reorient us to what is eternal? Maybe our focus has been wrong. Maybe we've been caught up in our own creaturely comforts. Maybe we've been caught up in our own individual lives and we couldn't take the time to get to know our neighbors or to to speak about the truth of Jesus. Maybe God has allowed it for that reason, that we reorient ourselves to seek his kingdom. We need to make his kingdom the priority of our lives. And we can see that for Jesus, this was also a priority. Because when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them, they asked him to teach them one thing. They didn't say, show us how to or teach us how to raise the dead, Jesus. Teach us how to give sight to the blind, Jesus. Teach us how to, to walk on water, Jesus. Teach us how to calm the storm, Jesus. Teach us how to cure the lame and the blind and the deaf. No, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Pray. On one level, that's extremely comforting. On another level, it's extremely frustrating. It's comforting because we know that we can do it. It's frustrating because we do it and we don't know how to do it very well. But it's rather simple. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus says we're to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. Your name is separate. We recognize who you are in your person. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We long for the day for you to come, to make things right. Lord, we, we long for your kingdom to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see your name being done. We want to see people become to the saving knowledge of you. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see your name receive great glory. And then they go on to say, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also for, forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's profound. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 23. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Don't, don't be worried. Don't, don't be fret. Anxiety literally means to be split into two. And some of us are so anxiety ridden right now. We're so worried about Is there going to be another stimulus check? Is there going to be another wave of COVID? What's the election going to have as a result? Who's going to win? What changes does that mean for me? What are the new laws that are going to be put in place? What, What does it mean? And we worry. But Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? 
or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, he tells them, don't worry about clothing, what you're going to wear. Don't worry about being the most newest style. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about your shelter, where you're going to be, your apartment, your, your home. You don't need to worry about that. Or your food, what you're going to eat. Or your, even your status. You know, it's interesting. He talks more about clothing than he does about food, drink, shelter. Why? You see, in the West, we have this tendency to think of poverty as shelter, food, water, good. But poverty actually has a different dimension to it. There was a study done several years ago where they asked people living in very poor countries to define poverty. They didn't define it or describe it by any definition that we in the West would use. They talked about its social implications and how it affects them when they're interacting with other people. For example, let's say you have three kids. Money's tight. Your kid gets an invitation to a birthday party. You know that everybody is going to be able to afford a gift, and yet you can't bring the gift. And you feel less than. You feel inadequate. You feel like you can't provide for your children. You feel that you are lost. That's the feeling that poverty brings. And here, God is saying, no, don't worry about even those things. Don't worry about what you wear, how people are going to think about you. Because they were concerned about their clothing and how people thought about them. He said, you got your basics, you even got your status that you're thinking about and how others are going to think about you. But you know what? Don't worry about that. Instead, I want you to seek me. Seek me. Seek my kingdom. Seek to live like me. And everything else, I'm going to take care of. Pursue me. Run after me. Do what I want you to do. Are you doing that? Are we doing that right now? In your family, with your home, with your kids, if you're single, or in your village, or with your tribe, what are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking about how people view you rather than how God views you? Know this, that if you seek to obey him, you pursue him, and you make him the priority of your life and making his name known, everything else is going to fall into place. And all these things will be added to you. It's a promise. And let me tell you something. When God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. He can't fail and he can't lie. And how do we respond to this wonderful promise? Well, what does our text say? In Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore, let us be grateful, grateful, for what reason? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. When you get something so awesome, you get something so phenomenal, you have to be grateful and worship. With my kids, whenever they get a present, I always make sure to tell them, say thank you. There is something that is within us that when we give something 
and then we're not acknowledged for it, we feel like we were slighted, unappreciated, that our act meant nothing. And we are to be grateful to God. And we need then to offer up a worship that is acceptable. You know, you were created to worship. We're all worshipers, every single one of us. The only issue is, what is the object of our worship? Do we worship ourselves, an ideal, a culture, our status, our intelligence, our beauty, our power, our charisma, our family, a job, a career, a hobby, a sin? What is the object of your worship? There is a worship that is unacceptable and a worship that is acceptable. We were created to worship. It is the most sacred, personal, and precious thing that we give. It is the essence of who we are, and it is to be for God alone. It is so serious, which is why the devil was kicked out of heaven. Because he wanted worship. It's why in Revelation when John, after he had seen so many of the glories of God and what's going to happen in the future, that he started to bow down to worship the angel who had showed him it all, who had been his guide. But the angel freaks out and stops him and cries out in Revelation 19.10, You must not do that! I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We are created to worship, giving God the honor and respect he is due with the essence of who we are. And that, that should cause us to be thankful. One of my favorite preachers is Tony Evans. He captures the idea of thankfulness in a story about a man who was out with his wife and they got caught in a terrible hailstorm. This was a massive hailstorm. The hail was so large that the hail was as large as baseballs. And under the deluge that was coming against them, the man realized that if he didn't do something, his wife would be severely hurt. So he quickly draped himself over his wife, covering her with his own body so that instead of the storm hitting his wife, it hit him. And the hailstones seemed to get bigger as the man bent over his wife, protecting her. And the large balls came down harder onto the man. They hurt him badly. And after a couple of minutes, his ears started bleeding along with some of the spots on his head. The man tried to lead his wife to safety, but the stones were coming out faster and harder. And the pounding stones took their toil, weakened by this onslaught. The man finally collapsed over his wife, only able to shield her from the danger. Now, after the storm was over, the man was left with the scars from where the balls had battered away at him, and the remnants of sores, cuts, and abrasions would forever be reminders to him of the day he saved his wife. It's a true story. And on the local newscast, the man's wife was asked how she felt about their experience, and she said this, every time I look at that scar on his head, on his neck, and on his ear, I love him more. Every time I see the scar, 
I love him more because he sacrificed himself for me. You see, when you and I get to heaven, Jesus is going to be the only person in eternity with scars. He will have holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and a hole in his side. He will be the eternal reminder that the only reason that we are there is because he stood in between the wrath of God and judgment for us. He covered us. He covered you with his love and allowed none of the hail to damage you. He was disfigured for you. This is the love of Jesus. You know, we do need to say thank you to God. And we need to offer up worship that is acceptable. And it's to be done with reverence and awe. Reverence. In our culture today, it seems that there is no one who is reverent for anything. We've lost the idea of reverence, of holiness, Oh, it's confined to movies, to songs, YouTube videos, reverence. It's deep respect. Who do you deeply respect? Since we have a stake in this kingdom, we are a part of it. We need to be then treating God properly. How do we treat God? Are we going to be slapping God a high five or a fist bump? No, we treat him differently than anybody else. There should be a deep reverence for who he is and an acknowledgement of what he has done. You know, one of my favorite movies is the old film To Kill a Mockingbird. And the main character is a guy by the name of Atticus Finch, who is a white lawyer who is defending a black client in the South. This is in the 1930s, 1940s era And this man had been unjustly accused and convicted of rape against a white woman, a crime he did not commit. All the evidence pointed to the fact that he didn't do it. And yet, because of the prejudice of the all-white jury, he was convicted and tried in 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 the face of a large amount of evidence that he wasn't, but they convicted him anyway because they couldn't imagine convicting the white man who was guilty of it. But Finch defended him. And the community took notice. As a matter of fact, at the trial, it was the event in town. And the entire courtroom was packed. And on the mezzanine level were all of the white citizens of the town who had come to listen. And in the balcony were all of the black citizens. Because of segregation, they had to sit up there. Now... Atticus Finch's daughter, her name was Jean Louise, was up in the balcony with the African-Americans that were there. And as the trial concluded and as everyone left the courtroom, all the white people left, most of all the African-Americans stayed. And as Atticus Finch is packing up his suitcase... He turns to walk out of the courtroom and the entire African-American community stands up. And Reverend Sykes, who is the leader of the community, says to Finch's daughter, Jean Louise, who is standing, sitting nearby, Jean Louise, stand up. Your father is passing. See, it was their way of honoring him for what he did on their behalf. They recognized the courage it took, the sacrifice, and they wanted to honor him because of it. 
How do we honor God? Do we recognize the sacrifice that he made? When we realize the extent of our own sin and what we deserved, and we see the courage that it took Jesus to face the onslaught, the misunderstanding, the shame, and the courage it took to go to the cross, even when he had the power to take everyone out, that he willingly endured it, even when he knew all of the evil that we would do. He did it because of his love for us. And we need to be treating God properly. How do we honor him? We honor him by giving the purest part of who we are, our worship. And we do so with gratitude, deep reverence, and awe. And why do we do this? Well, Hebrews 12, 29 says it, says it straight up for us. Because it reminds us of the God who we worship is. For our God is a consuming fire. Fire is not contained, is terrifying. The author of Hebrews tells us that because he is a terror to behold, that we forget that God is not a tame God, that he is the masterful, the creating God, the wrathful God, the God of love, the God of truth, the God who created all things, who hung all the stars into place, all of the different galaxies, our, our, our sun, all of the stars, created all of the different topography of earth where we have the mountains in the deepest oceans and valleys. He created everything. And as God, he actually must punish sin. He can't let it go. Have you ever seen someone that just says, I can't let it go? We're seeing a lot of talk of injustice in our culture today. And some of this is goes back hundreds of years because people can't let it go. It has to be dealt with. There needs to be justice. We are made to seek justice. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, imagine standing in line at the bank and someone just walks in front of you and you have an innate, an, an, an innate response, a revulsion. You can't do that. It's, it's placed there within us and we all have it. And with God, he has to punish sin because he is the very definition of justice. Now, I want us to think about what this is for a moment. I want us to imagine that we're in a major city near us. And let's say that we were to see a homeless man and we were to walk up and just punch the homeless man. Now, we might get into trouble. We may not. And if we do get into trouble, it will probably be very minor if we get into any trouble at all. Because not a lot of value is placed as a society upon those who are homeless. But let's take it up a notch. Let's say now that we go up and we punch a police officer. Now, in my context, I'm near the city of Chicago. And let's say that we were to go and punch the, a police officer in the city of Chicago. Now, I'm going to receive a punishment. This punishment is going to be greater than that, that I, if I were to have been punished from the homeless man, because the police officer represents justice. And in many ways, I am punching justice itself. And there must be a response in due proportion to the value that is placed upon that individual within our society. Now, let's say that I were to punch the president of the United States. And you can pick the most favorite president you've ever had. And let's say we're to punch that president. And how are, how is our society going to respond? If it's in America, the American people as a whole, are going to respond negatively. And the penalty that must be meted out 
must be in due proportion to the value placed upon that individual and the office that person holds. Now let's take it up an even greater notch. Let's say that we punch God in the face because that's what sin really is. It's a rejection of God saying, I don't want you. Now, the penalty that I'm to receive must be in due proportion to who he is. And because he is the very definition of justice, that he is completely love and merciful and good and wrathful and infinite and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and sovereign, then we must receive a penalty in due proportion to the value of him in his person and his office which is why hell must exist. It must exist. And when we understand that he is the judge, he is the only one that can forgive sins. And at the end of time, it won't matter what other people thought about us. And we realize that he is a consuming fire. And that's a terror to behold. Which, by the way, is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. He had to identify with us in our humanity, yet be without sin. And it's also why he had to have been God. He's the God-man. He had to satisfy God's righteous requirements. That in essence, he had to be able to grab the hand of man and the hand of God and unite the two together. It's almost as if we were on this boat that was going, getting ready to go right over a large waterfall. We would fall to our death and he's got one foot on land and one foot in the water and only he can reach us. And so as man, he had to be able to identify with us yet have no sin. And yet with God, he's infinite and eternal and he bridges that gap. He's able to pay the price that we had to pay on the cross. That he is the infinite one who offers up his life for us and enables us then to get to God. C.S. Lewis captured it so brilliantly in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy and Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, were talking about Aslan's leaving. Mr. Tumnus said, he's not a tame lion, to which Lucy responded, no, but he is good. God is terrifying, but he's good, and he loves you. He cares for you with an everlasting love. And we need to remind ourselves of that because he went to the cross because of his love for you. He loved you so much that he saw you in your sins, stepped into time and endured the shame, suffering and sting of the cross and all that it entails for you. What an awesome savior. He's given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a house that won't ever blow down. What a gift. What a savior. What a king. And that's our king. That's my king. And hopefully, he's your king. Well, that concludes today's episode. I don't know about you, but I'm fired up. Knowing that he is our king, that he is the one who reigns, he is the one who gives us an unshakable kingdom. I hope and pray that this really, truly saturates your faith, that you might go forth and saturate your world with the truth of who Jesus is. 
And please share this podcast with others. If you're not a subscriber yet, please hit that subscribe button. Throw us a like. Give us as many stars as you feel comfortable doing. And then pass this on to other people. Share it with them. Go on to social media and let's make Apollos watered. Let's saturate our social media with Apollos watered, shall we? And go on and check us out on our website, apolloswater.org, or go to our Facebook page and If you have any questions or there's something that you'd like to hear me talk about, contact me, Travis at ApollosWater.org. I want to thank everybody for listening, and I'll see you next week. Stay watered, everybody.